0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable Podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events, as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from psalm 119 169 and 170 let my cry come before you O lord give me understanding according to your word let my supplication come before you deliver me according to your word you pray with me father as we prepare our hearts to enter into worship this morning we ask that our cry would come before you as we hear your word proclaimed We ask that you give us understanding that is in accordance with that word, the word that was in the beginning and through whom all things have been made. We ask this in the name of that word, Jesus Christ, that you bless our worship this morning. Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him.
1: He also hears their cry and saves
0: them. In the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, our Lord tells the Pharisee with whom he was sharing a meal, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Close quote. This passage reveals two startling realities. First, maybe the most obvious, is that Christ expects his disciples to practice hospitality. He doesn't say if you give a dinner or supper, but when you give a dinner. Hospitality is a natural given for those bearing the name of Christ. Second, Christ knows that when we are regularly practicing hospitality, which we should, we will be tempted to do it the way the pagans might, only serving those with whom we are comfortable or who might be able to give us something in return. Instead, Jesus says that when we show hospitality, we should seek out people who we know can never repay us. So that we can instead obtain a glorious repayment in the next life at the resurrection of the just. Now in the context of this teaching, Jesus was addressing the besetting sins of the Pharisees who despised those who they felt were beneath them. Because of this context, we know that he was not commanding we never invite our family or friends over for supper. That's not what he was saying. However, we can't just pass it off. Don't forget that we each have a Pharisee lurking in our own hearts. And that Pharisee that's in our own heart is always seeking comfort. It's always seeking power. And maybe above all else, that Pharisee is always seeking a maintenance of the status quo. That Pharisee doesn't want to see change of any kind. Therefore, we must take this lesson to heart. So true hospitality should be of the shepherding variety the kind of hospitality that seeks to give unto others the gift we as Christians have been given, the gift of belonging. When you welcome someone into your home with a hot meal and a warm smile, you are telling them that they belong and giving them what the great shepherd of the sheep gives each of us, belonging to a people and a place where we previously had no right. This gift of belonging is a gift that can never truly be repaid. Hospitality is one of Christendom's most potent weapons in tearing down the gates of hell. However, if we only practice it on those with whom we are comfortable, then we do ourselves and the world a great disservice. We miss out on our reward at the resurrection of the just, and we fail to shepherd all of those who, like sheep, have gone astray. So ask yourself these questions. First, are you regularly practicing hospitality? Are you regularly having people into your home, feeding them and sharing an unvarnished life together with them? Second, if you answered yes to the first question, wonderful. But now ask yourself, are you practicing it with family or friends only? Or are you seeking out those our Lord considered poor, maimed, lame, and blind? Christ, our shepherd, has searched for and brought us "'Poor, maimed, lame, and blind sheep, though we were, into his kingdom. "'He gave us the name of saint and gave us a people and a place. "'He shepherds us by showering us with the utmost level of hospitality "'through feeding us with his body and blood every single week. "'He showed us this hospitality once and for all "'while he hung naked and despised upon the cross at Calvary, "'and in doing so earned his reward at his resurrection.'" Are we practicing that kind of hospitality with one another? Of course, to ask the question is to answer it. We do not, and we have failed in countless ways to show each other and the world the kind of shepherding hospitality that we've received in the gospel. And so that reminds us of our need to confess our sins. So as you are able, will you kneel with me as we confess our sins together? Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Scripture says in Psalm 32, verse 1 and verse 5, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ.
1: Genesis chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ariat. And at the waters... And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Please pray with me. Lord, we are gathered to worship you in spirit and in truth. Allow our spirits to be born on wings as eagles, as the power of your word endlessly lifts us, ever closer to you, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. amen. Please have a seat. Well, good morning, Christ's covenant and visitors. As we, um, as we continue to plumb the depths of the great book of Genesis, no pun intended here, we have moved into the flood itself and now We look to see what Moses was inspired to record and what the Holy Spirit has for us. The post-Diluvian survivors that we are, what we should consider here as we look at these 19 verses in chapter 8 of Genesis. And as we look at this portion of scripture, I want to point out three things which I will do in ascending order of importance as we go through the message this morning. The first one being that Noah was on the ark. And he was on the ark a a certain period of time. The second thing is that God remembered Noah. And that's the point I will uh, make a strong highlight of this morning. And we also see that God speaks to Noah. Noah's on this ark 370 days. Now, we've all been, uh, we've all had this story of Noah shared with us. Uh, often, as young young folks in church or in Sunday school or whatever, and we hear we hear about Noah and the Ark and God's favor towards Noah and all these things, and there's such a powerful message in that. Uh, we've we've taught Noah and the Ark to our youngsters and to those in in um, Sunday school that we were responsible for. But the thing that as i looked at this scripture and i and i read it a lot because it is so familiar and again it's not it's it's an easy portion of scripture to maybe read through and just continue to go on and on and on without without stopping a moment and just considering the things that are contained in these verses That noah was on the ark three hundred and seventy days three hundred seventy days was he on the ark that, Uh, seven days in advance, the flood is announced. And all all this is in Scripture. It's borne out in Scripture, this this timetable. Waters prevail for a 150-day period. Waters abate for a 150-day period. The earth dries out during a 70-day period. And God begins to reverse the process that he started in Genesis 7, verse 11. And I, I invite you to think about the immensity of the deep as God brings judgment upon the whole world we've talked about that and I certainly don't want to belabor that today but we think about the deep and the covering of the whole earth the fact that this was not a a local flood it wasn't uh, restricted to Palestine or northern Africa or anything like that this thing covered Mount Everest by fathoms so the entire earth was covered with this deep I know certainly I have been thinking about it and when we if, when we have occasion to go to the beach, which we do in this state, that's a pretty, uh, that's a wonderful thing. I know people who live in America who have never seen the coast before. You know, their their lake is as big as Lake as Mayfield or whatever, a decent sized body of water, but it doesn't compare to the Pacific. I remember uh, Kay and I every twenty years uh, on their anniversary. Uh, we went up for our honeymoon in 1979 to Oahu in Hawaii, and then uh, every 20 years after that we've gone, and I think we're going to have to step up the frequency a little bit because I'm, <laughs> I'm getting a little long in the tooth. But anyway, I remember the first time we went in 1979 as as a young couple, and we had occasion to go to Pearl Harbor. And we went in and uh, took the tour of the Pearl Harbor uh, Memorial, and you, you take a little ferry out to the memorial, and... Um, it's a, very, uh, it's a very sobering thing. If you've ever had occasion maybe in Europe to go, uh, for instance, we, we visited Dachau and, uh, and went and saw that place. And there's just an aura about it. So here we are on the memorial, and the mo- memorial is situated above the Arizona, which is still below water. It's still sunk in Pearl Harbor. And you think about that. And the tragedy of that, the abruptness of it and all of that, but the, what really got us is that as we looked upon the water and then looked over the, the rail of the memorial, we realized that there's still, there's still 900 sailors interred in that boat, or that ship, rather, excuse me. It's a very sobering thing to consider. So there's, there's this sense about the ocean that we have, certainly the vastness of it, I mean who hasn't said to their child on the on the beach in in Washington or Oregon you know if you look all the way across here you can see Japan or China or something something way over there right it's just so immense but there's also this this thing about about this water where this liquid interfaces with air and that we can we can survive in this atmosphere here but there's just this just this Definite mark below which we cannot survive. It we it, we cannot inhabit that place, and it's and it's unknown and it's uncertain. And there's always, for me anyway. Let me just speak for me. Is when I look at it, there's this this wonder about the power of it and the vastness of it, but there's also this element of foreboding as well. So the reason I kind of went on about this for a little bit is I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about Noah on this ark. I'm thinking about Noah on this ark, not for 40 days. Not for 40 days in a week while God dries it out. Now, he, could he have done it? Absolutely. We know he could have. But for 370 days, he resided in this. And remember the last time I was up here, we talked about how God shut him in. How the ark was closed to, to safeguard Noah and how God sealed him and his family in this, along with the creatures that were brought on board as well. 370 days. And I think about what it must have been like for Noah and his family as they were shut in and floating on this sea of judgment for 370 days. Might they, might they even, and I'm speculating here, or not even speculating, but just wonder, it made me think, you know, as the waters began to accumulate, as the waters began to arise, could could the the people in the ark could they hear the cries and the wails of those who God was executing judgment against? Could they hear that through the walls of the ark? Could they could could they hear people maybe hitting the hitting the hull, going save us, help us? Could that have been happening? I don't know, but I can tell you this: that if you were ensconced in the ark, if you were if you were selected and chosen by God to be put on that ark that you wouldn't be able to help yourself but think about those who are out there who are who are under that great judgment that's going on do you think noah suffered any doubt when he was on the ark do you, do you think he doubted had any doubt about himself and and his worthiness to be singled out for this this redemption and you can see the connection here to us as believers, to us as Christians. Did Noah have any doubt about that? Because we don't know everything about Noah, but Noah knows Noah. And not everybody knows everything about Les Doyle, but I know about Les Doyle. Did Noah have any doubt about God? Is there is no indication that God is overtly making his presence known to Noah? There's no indication that he walked the lower decks with Noah during this 370-day uh, seclusion and isolation and all the things that were going on during that over, uh, year-long um, uh, presence on the boat. Could Noah have suffered from depression as he pondered the possibility that God may have abandoned him? After all, 370 days is a really long time. And I would ask you, has there been times in your life that you feel like God may have abandoned you? When we when we when we consider some of the things that we go through. I've heard people I've heard people evangelize others and tell them, listen, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And just come to him and everything will be good. But the, but the resounding voice that, that thunders over that is Jesus saying in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation, but you're to take courage because I've overcome the world. That's the thing. That we're not promised a rose garden. We're promised difficulty and challenge. And do you think, have, have, have any of you had that happen in your lives? Those periods where you wonder, where's God right now? You know, and, it, and it, with this nautical theme as far as the judgment and the water on the earth, I remember as a 20-year-old man, young man in 1975, I remember when this ship, the uh, Edmund Fitzgerald, sunk in, in Superior, Lake Superior, and a guy wrote a song, a guy named Gordon Lightfoot wrote a song, and there's a lyric on there that says, Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the days turn to minutes the hours? You know, that, that, that there's this thing going on. So Noah is in the midst of this. I don't think it would be a stretch to imagine that Noah had great bouts of doubt. Think of your own life and all of that. But here's the thing about today's scripture. And it begins immediately in verse 1 of chapter 8. Four words. But God remembered Noah. Just simple, four simple words, but four unimaginably prolific words, especially if your name is Noah and you've been ensconced on this ship, this ark, for 370 days. But God remembered Noah. It's not too difficult to recall those times in the Word uh, when Scripture states God remembered. Exodus 2, 23 and 5, for instance. During those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and he knew. In Psalm 105, verse 8, it says, he, God, he remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. God remembers. When we look at this verse from Noah's Perspective, we see that those four words are absolutely invaluable to Noah. They're absolutely imperative and invaluable to Noah. From God's perspective, this is what we would call an anthropomorphism. In other words, we see God merely speaking as if he were a man. God remembers. The expression remember does not literally mean a recalling or calling to mind here, it's this covenant, this is covenant language. And God remembered. This is covenant language, designating covenant fidelity on God's part. God remembering always implies his movement towards an object or towards the subject or towards whoever the, 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 the direction is given. Remember, God remembers. There's an activity from God that is, accompanies this understanding that God remembers. You know, Rescuing the Israelites, God remembered his covenant with Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Things like that. We see, we see the result of that and how that understanding and the truth of that manifests in God's operation and how he, how he uh, relates to his people. And to this day, he still relates to us covenantally. To say that God remembered Noah is to say that God faithfully kept his promise to Noah by what? By intervening to end the flood, because he told Noah he would do that. So, as I meditated on this short, this, these short four words this week um, and thought about them and thought about what I needed to say about them, what I desired to say about them, it made me recall thoughts about heaven and the prospect of being in heaven. And the many people of renown I hope to encounter in heaven. I hope and I'm certain I will see Paul. I hope and I'm certain I will see Peter. I hope and I'm certain I will see saints that I love and from my family that have gone on before me. Obviously the first one I will seek out is our Lord. But it's something to think about. But I recall now an exchange in Luke as I was thinking about but God remembered Noah and the exchange with Jesus and, a, and another person went like this and he said this robber who was hanging naked next to Jesus on the cross said to Jesus remember me remember me when you come into your kingdom and he said to him, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. There is, there is one person for sure that we are absolutely certain of who is in heaven. It's, it's, it's just there. But I said, How, do, I have to do, do I have to contort a whole lot? Do I have to stretch a whole lot to, to work that understanding that the man asks, God to remember him. And the implication is Jesus remembers him, remembered him and in fact remembered him by saying and telling him with no, in no uncertain terms, today you will be with me in paradise. I want to see that guy. I just do. It's just something that I harbor within me. Of course we would naturally assert that God doesn't forget anything. He's God. He doesn't forget anything. The assertion, though true, is abstract and misses the important connection between God's remembrance of Noah and his showing in tangible ways that he remembers him. So as as it is said that God remembered Noah, God acted again. The waters abated, the waters withdrew, the waters went to the place they belonged, where God dictated they go because he is sovereign over everything. So God remembered Noah in three ways. The first way we see him remembering Noah is he he began to remove the water like he said he would. The great judgment upon man and the earth has been accomplished to God's satisfaction. We see in in, uh, part B of verse 1 there, it says, And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. This wind, this Ruah, R-U-A-H, this term echoes the description of God's spirit, or Ruah, at creation. The flood takes us back to a form reminiscent of the beginning of creation. Months ago, when we started this our journey through Genesis, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit... The wind, the ruah of God, was hovering over the face of the waters. And remember that Moses witnessed the might of God's wind to induce and chase away a locust plague in Exodus 19, and to part to sea so that the Israelites could cross on dry ground with the Egyptian army in hot pursuit of them. In Exodus 15, verse 10, it says, You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in mighty waters. And in Numbers 11, verse 31, it says, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and let them fall beside the camp. God is celebrated as one who lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messenger winds. He ministers a flaming fire in Psalm 104. When God remembers he often does it with a new burst of power. The second way that God remembered Noah was by giving him a sign. And God gave him this sign through the sending out and returning to the dove. The dove returning with the olive branch must have been, imagine this, quite a sign to Noah. Locked in 370 days, the water's covering literally everything, there wasn't some lone cedar tree or something sticking up out of the water. It, God ensured that there was, it enveloped everything, and not just barely, but substantially. The olive tree and the olive branch have been symbols of peace and reconciliation ever since the account of Noah's flood, right? We always hear about an olive branch being offered as, as a token and as a symbol. When the dove brought Noah a plucked olive leaf in its beak, the olive branch represented new life sprouting on the earth. The olive tree was alive and growing. The promise of the dove's olive branch was a new beginning for humanity, peace and reconciliation with God, renewal and revival. The slow and hardy growth of the olive tree also implies establishment and peace. Some of the oldest olive trees in the world still grow today in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives the third way we see God remembered is with words and this is also the third point the third observation that just is very apparent in these nineteen verses of Genesis chapter one We talk about the sea we talk about God remembering and now we we think about God speaking it does say something about Noah that he waited to hear from the Lord before opening the door and bounding out of that funky ark okay, into the fresh air and the post-diluvian landscape that awaited him. What it says is that Noah was a holy and obedient man. Noah chose to remain in the tainted atmosphere until he was sure that his debarkation from the ark would be pleasing to God. And even in the most trivial things, Scripture is very clear That we should endeavor to do our best to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and the will of God in our own lives. And though hearing a direct command from God in an audible voice, as Noah did, is not normative, we want to do nothing but what is in accordance with the word of God and Holy Scripture. And that can be hard. It can be difficult. And I'm not going to get into, into the the specifics right now but suffice it to say that we had a grand announcement today about Aaron Ventura becoming our pastor and I can tell you this that um, the process the process for all this this how this coalesced into this decision uh, the decisions made by us as a session and representing our flock okay And the same decisions made in Moscow, Idaho, by the Ventura family, as well as as well as the folks that the people that he works for out at out in Christ Church and all of that, God just boom, put it there. But it was because we sought sought the Lord. It's because we asked God, Lord, is this the right thing? And we didn't hear the sky open up and go, Yes, it's the right thing but rather we trusted God that as much as he works on my heart and in my, in in my attitude and temperance towards Aaron, that he worked on Joe's, he worked on Luke's, he worked on yours as we talked to you guys and solicited input and ask you how you felt about things. And lo and behold, he's doing the same thing to Aaron and Ellen Ventura. So even though the clouds don't open up and speak to us, We don't sit around wringing our hands and and quivering, wondering and uncertain as to what to do, but rather we continue to seek God and seek him by the revelation of his word in our lives. And are the things we do, are the things we are about in our life, are they in accordance with the word of God and how we understand it, how God has revealed himself to us? Moses relates to us in this passage that Noah went out of the ark as soon as he, relying on the voice of God, was aware that a new habitation was given him on earth. That's a remarkable thing. So there's been a, you know, even in the short eight chapters of Genesis, (laughs) there's been a whole lot going on here, right? I mean a whole lot. This is not just boom, 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 boom. This is... There, there are things going on, and we, we see God demonstrating his grace. We see God demonstrating his mercy, but we also see God demonstrating his sovereignty and his holiness and his righteousness, but we also see God acting covenantally. We see us moving towards this point, and us being on this side of the cross, we can certainly see it and embrace it and understand it and know it, that what he said in Genesis 3.15, that we know that the head of the serpent has been crushed. Crushed by the king. Crushed by the promised seed of the woman, the one who came. And his name is Jesus Christ. So what do we walk away with from these 19 verses? Well, we should, find, should we find it any surprise at all that God remembers? Should that be remarkable to us? Maybe in a way it should. Because he is so high and so highly exalted. What is man that you have any thought of him? Yet our God does. That is a remarkable and amazing thing. And I always say, you know, God, he doesn't surprise me, but he ceaselessly amazes me. That's just how I see it. We shouldn't be surprised that God remembers because God is faithful. He fulfills his promises. And we're aware of those promises. He strengthens us for adversity. And we see we see the rainbow in the sky and know that he remembers. We know it's been hijacked and appropriated by groups contrary to where we're at we are at. But that's for us. It's for us to know that God remembers. And it has, and it and it's not implied or indicated at all that God forgets. But He does remember. And I know there's scripture in there that talks about how He he forgets our sin when we are in Christ. I love, I love the, uh, the uh, scripture, and it escapes me where it's at, but it, I, uh, it says that he casts our sin as far as the east is from the west. And that's an interesting thing, and I love how the Bible will say these things, but they're not, they're not just uh, one-offs. They're not just tossed out there for, oh, wow, he casts it that far. Think about it. If you, start, if you start from here and start walking north, at some point you're going to hit a place on the globe where you start walking south. But start walking east and keep going, and you're never going to be walking west because you're just going to keep going and going and going. That's the visual. That's what God, he it as far as east is from the west. There's a point to that that says something about God. So we know that God remembers, but well, what the marvel is, if we step back just a moment and really look at it, the marvel is, is that Noah remembered. As we, see this, as we see this play out here, Noah remembered the goodness of God and God's tender mercy and grace toward him, a sinner, as the judgment loomed. We see his remembrance of the goodness and faithfulness of God allowed him, a sinner, ...to remain on the ark until bidden by God to come forth. Noah's remembrance of his God allowed him, a sinner... ...to endure 370 days of encapsulation on the ark. Noah's remembrance of God gave him, a sinner, a peace and assurance... ...as he left behind the only world he knew... ...and trusted God for what lay ahead when the judgment was complete. Noah demonstrated his remembrance by coming out of the ark... ...building an altar and then sacrificing some of all the clean animals... And clean birds as a sin offering, thus coming to God as a sinner and in a manner pleasing to God. Why is this surprising? Because it is a bit surprising. Well, it's surprising because it's not in our nature, it's not in human nature to remember God or God's goodness. And we forget at no time more readily than just immediately after we have been delivered from some trial. Now, we as believers, we, we, we tend to have a stronger, we certainly have that memory of who God is and what he's done for us. No matter, no matter the thing that's going on in our life. But I'll tell you what, a car full of pagans going over an icy bridge 500 feet in the air and the car starts spinning out of control, what's the, what's the refrain being raised up? Oh God, help us. The car straightens out and they go on their way and they, with nary a thought. That the car straightened out and they're safely across whatever gorge or river they were crossing. But for us it should be a different thing. And as I thought about that, Certainly there's that passage in Luke 17, very short, let me share it with you. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Let me challenge you all to thus remember God, remember him always. And as we think about God and Noah and this great flood and all this talk of remembrance, I want to close with this. It's a story that we're, we're, most of us are very familiar with. Um, it's a man named Horatio Spafford. And he wrote a hymn called It Is Well With My Soul. Now, his wife and four daughters were on the Via de Harve, a ship, when it sank on November 22, 1873, in the Atlantic Ocean. The, whole, the entire ship went down, and his four daughters drowned. And his wife did not drown, and Spafford was made aware of this by a telegram that had two words on it. His wife only said, Saved alone. Now Spafford steamed across the Atlantic to join his grieving wife. Most of us know this story. And as his ship approached the point where the Duhav sank, burying his daughters in the deep, he penned the words to the famous hymn, We know and we love so well. And I want to close just by um, sharing that with you. It's very short, and I challenge you not to have the tune in your head as I read it. But think about that. Here's, Here's a man who lost four daughters. We can imagine how precious that is. And when he came to the place that marked their watery grave, he wrote this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, lest this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but in whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if Jordan above me shall roll, no pang shall be mine, for in death as in life thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope, blessed rest of my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well, it is well with my soul. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me welcome you now to the Lord's table. The Lord's supper is dinner with Jesus. It's the meal we take with God on the Lord's Day. Common sense as well as biblical theology indicate that we should eat with God every week on his day. Sadly, the church is either surrounded the Lord's Supper with superstitions or else neglected it, doing it only monthly or quarterly. But if we understand this great gift that God offers us when he invites us to his house to worship and dine with him, we will not neglect the sacrament of Holy Communion. The unity of the church is a unity in Christ. The Lord's Supper seals that unity to us in that we all feed on Christ and thus are all together made partakers of the same body. There's also a remembering aspect going on here too. The bulletin answers the question, may I come to the Lord's table? And I invite you to read and see what the heart of our church is regarding communion and feel welcome to join or abstain as your situation dictates. So let us begin. Receive this charge. I charge you this Lord's Day to remember God and his infinite goodness, grace, mercy, and compassion. Remember today the great sacrifice of Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer. Remember to always bear the name of Christ with distinction and deference to God, with grace and humility and thanksgiving, and let the fire of the Holy Spirit be evident in the conduct of your lives. Now receive the benediction from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.